So on Mondays, we've been doing this School of Prayer, Contemplative Prayer Group, um, 10 a.m., and last Monday, we were gathered, and we were doing this thing called the Prayer of Examine. It's an Ignatian exercise, and one of the beginning parts of the Prayer of Examine is to kind of move into a, a time of silence and to reflect on the last 24 hours of all the things we could possibly be thankful for. And just as we kind of went into this time of silence, all of a sudden the loudest noises started going on outside. It was a lawnmower and a leaf blower and it was just all going right there. And as sort of the unofficial leader of this group, I'm feeling all of these feelings like, this is gonna be so distracting and uh, people aren't gonna be able to, to concentrate or to reflect and uh, it, you know, it was just, I was just all over the place. Uh, I, and then, okay, then I found some, some stillness in my soul and it dawned on me that uh, I could be thankful for those noises because it, it meant that the grass was starting to grow again and needed to be cut. And I was like, oh, it's like life breathing back into the world. And, and, and I guess what that made me think of as I come to the, our text this evening is that if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, God is, he's at work everywhere. Like he is just on the move all around us. For the last several weeks, we've been working our way through Mark chapter one, and that's exactly the type of thing we've seen. Jesus comes into town and he declares that the reign of God is breaking into our world. It's at hand, it is, it is near, and then Jesus is on the move. He's, he's calling followers from the seashore uh, uh, at Capernaum, and he's casting out demons, and he's healing, and People are coming to him. Then he goes out on tour and he's touching lives and everywhere he goes, there's verve and life and power and it's amazing. It's amazing. And I think it's important that Jesus, Jesus is doing these things because as we, as we come into chapter two, starting today, we're gonna see Jesus encountering opposition He's gonna be encountering barriers to his ministry and to the things that he's saying and to things that he's doing. And I think it is essential, and it's an essential part of the gospel that Jesus meets resistance, that he has barriers, that they're in the Bible. And the reason I think that's important is because I don't like talking about things that don't relate to us. And every single one of us has barriers in our lives. And I'm not just talking about barriers to your best self. I'm talking about barriers to God, barriers to feeling fully alive, barriers to, um, uh, to walking in wholeness like, like God intended. And so today's story has good news for us as people who live normal lives with barriers. And so I'm gonna ask us to pay attention to what Jesus has to say to us. And Lord, as we are about ready to read your, your word, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to hear you, to see you, to receive what it is that you have for us. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you could follow along if you like. I'm in Mark chapter two, and I'm gonna be reading verses one through 12. The story goes like this. When he, speaking of Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. 
And many were gathered there so that there was no longer any room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they dug an opening, they let down the mat that he was on, which the paralytic was laying on, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son or child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? Why does he forgive sins? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, he said to them, why are you reasoning? Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or get up? Pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he got up immediately, and he picked up the mat, and he went out in sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So in this story, Jesus has been on tour. He's been teaching and healing, and now he's come back after several days to kind of his home base. It's in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And he sets up this base of operations there. It's, it's either his house Some scholars think that. Most think it was Simon and Andrew's house, the same house where he healed the mother-in-law and he had been working out of before. But regardless, he's at this house that he's very comfortable in, and there's crowds gathering there to hear him teaching. He says he's teaching the word, which is a a way of saying the gospel. Now, archaeologists tell us that that the average person's house in first century Capernaum and that type of area could have about 50 people in it. Now, we're talking about like like not fire code capacity, but about 50 people if you're standing really close to each other with just a little bit of room around Jesus. And, and, And if any of you have traveled sort of like in the West, New York, London, Switzerland, those types of places, and you've got on, say, trains, you know that the train is full when the train is full, right? Like when you can't fit any more people on there. But if you've ever traveled to, like, Greece or Italy or Spain, you know that the train isn't really full until you cannot run and jump and cram your way in. Like, there is just a different concept of personal space. And, like, in Israel, Spain, Italy, those types of places, like there is no personal space. So it is, like when it says it's full and people can't get in, it is full and people cannot get through the door. Now, this is all going on and then this group of five shows up, a paralyzed man and his four friends. They must have heard that Jesus is back in town. They must have heard that this Jesus guy is good at healing people. And they must have been desperate enough to give this a go, so they show up only to find barriers between them and Jesus. Like, they literally can't get in to see him. 
And I love what New Testament scholar William Platcher, how he describes this scene. He says the four friends remind him of four frat brothers, fiercely loyal, willing to do anything for their friends, and sort of like don't care about social conventions. So the usual entrance to see Jesus is blocked, they'll just find another way. I mean, sure, they dig a hole in the mud and thatch roof. Sure, it might drop dirt and sticks on the people's heads, but if it gets their friend an audience with Jesus, it's worth it, bruh, right? Like, their passion, they're going for it. And so they carry their friend up on his mat, more like, like some of the translations say pallets, and I always think wooden pallet, like forklifts to use. It's more like a, like a woven reed mat, like a yoga mat made out of reeds, that kind of idea. And so they're really durable and somewhat flexible, and they're kind of like a, a poor person's bed. And this is what this guy's probably been living on as a paralyzed person. And so these guys, they pick him up, and in order to get to the roof of a, a flat roof of a first century uh, Capernaum house, like, they had an external ladder. I'm not talking a staircase, but a ladder. So these four bras, they're getting their friend up on a ladder. I don't know if you've ever been carried before, like maybe you twisted an ankle and you're on a trail and someone's trying to help you. Like it makes you feel vulnerable. I don't know if I'd want four friends taking me up like in a blanket up a ladder and then lowering me down into this house. Like that's, that's sort of the scene that we're dealing with here. They carry him up, they lower him down to Jesus without any kind of fancy gear or cables or anything. And it's like, is he in the middle of teaching? Yeah, he probably is. Is it disruptive as heck? Um, yeah, no doubt in my mind because it, these roofs have poles and then they have, they have like reeds over the top and then they have inches of mud on the top of that and that forms kind of the roof. So, so you literally, that's why it says they dug a hole in the roof. They had to get the clay out of the way and move the reeds and then roll some of the poles over so that you could have a three, four foot section and this is dropping crap all over people's heads inside. And it's really interesting the kind of character that Jesus is because it doesn't say that he notices the damage to the house. It's either his house or Simon and Andrew's. Either way, it's his house. It's like where he's staying. He doesn't talk about the damage or the intrusion or how rude it was or the brashness. What it says is that Jesus sees their faith, their trust that getting close to Jesus is what they need more than anything else in the world. And Jesus forgives this man, and all of a sudden, the narrator tells us that in the crowd, stuffed in the house, there happen to be some of these figures who are called scribes. And and, and religious scribes were sort of like experts in the religious law. In fact, sometimes in Scripture, they're referred to as lawyers, because they're just like looking at all the laws of the Hebrew Scripture and figuring out how people can best follow them. And they are bent out of shape because Jesus apparently spoke forgiveness over a man without requiring any kind of sacrifice, without any priest present, without going through the temple system. And technically, that type of move, first of all, that's God's prerogative. And to do something like that is actually blasphemous, which could get you killed, which in several chapters from now, that will be the charge brought against Jesus. 
Now, Jesus picks up on their disapproval and to show that he has the power and authority to forgive someone's sins, he heals the paralyzed man and commands him to get up and walk and go home. And it's absolutely amazing. And the people start glorifying God. And even after, so this group of people is in Capernaum. He's previously been to Capernaum. He's previously cast out multiple demons of that community in Capernaum. He's healed multiple people. Even Simon's mother-in-law in that house, he's already healed her miraculously of a fever. And these people say, we've never seen anything like this. They were amazed and they praised God. And so that is the gist of this story. Now, for the remainder of our time together this evening, I'm gonna go back through the story, and I'm gonna consider it from three perspectives. In this first perspective, I want us to focus on Jesus. I want you to pretend you're in that group, in the house. I mean, you're stuffed in this thing, man. It is standing room only, and you have to get out of your mind COVID and all the germophobic stuff that we have going on in our minds right now. Like, we don't know about those things back then. <laughs> no such thing as microscopes or bacteria or viruses. You're just in this house. I bet it's stinky. <laughs> There's no deodorant. And I bet it's warm. And they didn't have very big windows back then. And it's... Yeah, it's ripe in there. And yet, you've been hearing things about Jesus, and you're listening to him talk, and whatever it is about him, you really don't want to be anywhere else. You're, you're willing to be in that stuffy house. And I think that what Mark wants us to consider is who is Jesus? Why? Why be in that house in the first place? What is the story teaching us about him? I mean, it's one thing to see a celebrity, and it's kind of exciting to be around a person who is visionary and a cutting edge of, of where society is going. I mean, we've, there's people that come and go all the time like that. Very rarely, though, do they make you change your life or transform your worldview completely. Um, but what if Jesus... What if Mark is telling us that he's more than an exceptional man? What if his, his teaching and his invitation to follow and his description of reality, what if it was true? Because if it's true, it absolutely changes everything. Jesus forgives this man without referencing God, without making an animal sacrifice, without going to the temple, without a priest present. The scribes are right to be upset. Only God should be able to forgive sin. I mean, of course, you can forgive someone. If I sin against Jens, Jens could, because he's awesome, could forgive me. But you know what Jens can't do? He can't forgive me to God, and he definitely can't forgive Mark's sin against Rob. I mean, what, what, is, what does Jens have to do with that situation? Here, here Jesus for, just forgives this guy's sins without even any explanation of what they are, and he's doing it for God. So the scribes are right. If Jesus is just a man who's declaring forgiveness, then he has committed blasphemy. But what we've been reading thus far as witnesses to Jesus' life, as witnesses to his death and resurrection, is that he's not just a man. 
He's God's agent, God in the flesh, the God-man. In fact, in verse, in verse 10 in this passage, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus prefers to talk to, about himself as the Son of Man. He does not like to say, I'm the Messiah. He does not like to say, I'm Son of God. He does not like to say, I'm the King, because all of those terms are loaded with connotations that he does not want. So he refers to himself as son of man. And you know, in the Hebrew scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament, the term son of man can mean lots of things. It can just mean like a regular human man or a regular human being. But there's another way it was used. And that's a particular reference, uh, relevance to Jesus. And that is in Daniel chapter seven, Israel has been oppressed by a foreign nation after foreign nation after foreign nation. And these nations are described in Daniel as fantastic beasts. Like crazy weird beasts, right? Like, like lions with wings and eyes all over themselves and bears and like they're, they're all amalgams of animals and people and they're, just, they're, they're not supposed to be real, right? They, they're... They represent these horrible, twisted empires that oppress people. And then something happens because, you know, Israel is supposed to be the nation that reflects God's goodness into the world. And the world is supposed to come to know God through Israel. And Israel is being oppressed by these beastly empires. But then something happens through repeated rebellion and idolatry, God declares Israel is acting like a beast too. So now, if you've got beastly empires, and the one nation that was supposed to bring them to God, and now that nation is a beast, what hope is there for humanity? What's to be done? Who can rescue the, girl, the, the world when God's rescue plan for Israel seems to be on its side. And then we get the answer in Daniel 7. We get a nameless figure called the Son of Man who would come and he would beat down. He would become beat down. He would be destroyed by the beasts of the world. And after he was destroyed, he would be vindicated by God, lifted up, and in the presence of the beasts of the world and these evil empires, he would receive honor and glory and power to rule the world and to judge the world of wickedness. The Son of Man would be God's regent or king. He would be a divine figure carrying out the reign of God on earth. That's what Daniel 7 talks about, the Son of Man. And the prophet Isaiah spoke of God's reign coming, and those who are lame and paralyzed will begin to walk, and their sins will be forgiven. So there you are in a crowded room, and this man, Jesus, is healing the lame and forgiving sins and identifying himself as the Son of Man. And what these crowds don't even know yet, but the readers of Mark do, is that Jesus, the Son of Man, was contested by the powers of the world, that he was eventually crushed by the powers of the world, he was rejected by his own people, crucified by the Roman Empire, and then what happened? He was raised and vindicated. Now here's the twist. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is vindicated and receives a authority and power to judge. 
And the first thing Jesus does, though, is offer forgiveness. He holds back his judgment. It still hasn't come. There's still time for forgiveness. You know, on this Transfiguration Sunday, we don't need a mountaintop experience of Mark 7 or Matthew, I mean Mark 9, um, because we see the glory of Jesus revealed in a crowded room with a hole in the roof. Consider the uniqueness of Jesus, this one who is worthy of our worship and our very lives, our focus and our obedience. He is God and he is good. The second person I think Mark wants us to focus on, or at least, at least I do, so just stick with it, is the paralyzed man. We don't know much about this guy. We don't have his name. We don't know the cause of his paralysis. We don't have any indication what he knows or doesn't know about Jesus. But what we do know about him is that he's got some significant obstacles in his life. I mean, just being paralyzed would have put him on the margins of, uh, of mainstream society Uh, in in the place where he lived. And there's something more. When he finally meets Jesus, probably hoping for the healing of his legs, something unexpected happens. Jesus forgives his sins. He wasn't coming asking for that as far as we know. And what are we supposed to make of this? I mean, first, just a little bit of cultural, historical background. There's quite a bit written uh, of written evidence that both first century Jewish people and first century Gentile people, so basically the whole world in that area, they believed that sin was the cause of emotional, spiritual, and physical sickness. And primarily, sin uh, that, that the sick person committed or that their parents committed. So if somebody was particularly paralyzed, had leprosy, blindness, deafness, demonization, or lameness of any sort, It was just kind of the common belief that, oh, (laughs) you or your parents must have really screwed up somewhere. So that was like the common understanding. But Jesus, he goes to links throughout the Gospels to debunk that position. For example, when he healed the leper, which was, if you were here last week, it was the story just right before this one. He doesn't say anything to the leper about forgiving his sins. Like he just says, be healed, and then he brings him back into society. Okay, so there clearly he doesn't make a one-to-one. But even more poignant, later on in John's gospel, chapter nine, he's gonna meet a blind man. And and his disciples will pull him aside and say, so who sinned, like this guy or his parents? And Jesus said, like, you've got it all wrong. This man isn't blind because of his sin. He's not blind because of his parents' sin. He's just blind. And he's going to, my healing is gonna bring glory to God in this moment. So he debunks the idea that sin equals paralysis or equals blindness or equals some sort of bad physical malady on you, okay? On the other hand, notions don't become popular unless there's some truth to them. Why, well, like, why would people think that? Why would people think that your sin made you sick or, or paralyzed? So we have to hold these in tension because 1 Corinthians 11 specifically mentions some of the Christian community who were sick and even died as a result of their sin. And James 5 implies that the mixture of praying for healing should include praying for forgiveness. So there's some sort of connection there some of the time. And I think that many of the times when sin is at the root of sickness, 
It's not always some direct result like sin is some, or like your sickness is some advanced payment on your sin from God. After all, God is the one who revealed himself in Jesus, eager to help. And I think that, that it's when we feel guilt and shame and isolation from God, when we feel isolated from others, that then illnesses can manifest. Think about a time when you've done something or said something that has kept you up at night or caused you a headache or a stomach ache or some sort of distress-related physical symptom. Sometimes we may say, I'm so ashamed I feel sick to my stomach. You know, in counseling and spiritual direction practices, we don't just stick with the cognition. We don't just say, what do you think about a situation? We don't only even say, how do you feel about a situation? But we might ask, where do you experience this in your body? Because the body never lies. Anxiety can be the cause of sleeplessness or hypertension or ulcers. And in more extreme cases, there's the term somatoform disorders. Somatoform, soma, is the Greek word for body. And one of the most intense somatoform disorders is known as conversion disorder. And it's named conversion disorder because the stress of emotions are converted into physical manifestations. In extreme cases, uh, guilt and shame can actually cause physical paralysis in your limbs and other areas. Isn't that fascinating? So Jesus seems to know the root causes of people's problems. And when he encounters the leper, he doesn't say anything about the man's sin. He just heals him and knows that his big issue is he needs to be incorporated back into the community. And that's what he does. When he meets this, this paralyzed man who comes through the roof, he sees something different. And he approaches his need. The paralytic seems to be needing forgiveness in that moment. And you know, the same can be true for where you're at, where I'm at. We might not be physically paralyzed, but because of guilt and shame, we can be socially paralyzed, feeling that we're unworthy to participate fully in our families, in our circles of friendships, in our community, even in our church community, maybe especially in our church community. We can be paralyzed with feeling inadequate, fearful that if anyone found out, our, our world around us would crumble. And so we hold people at an arm's distance. We just give a little bit of ourselves so people think that we're authentic and real, but we hold back the real self because we want to protect it from pain. And that, that's a form of paralysis. And I want us to notice the good news of this passage because it's been speaking to me this week as I've been studying it. So we don't know if the man was paralyzed because of his sin. And we don't know if he was healed because he repented, like we didn't hear anything about that. And we don't know if the man ever confessed his sin. And in fact, I think that the ambiguity, the reason that we don't know the answers to those questions makes us focus on, well, what do we know then? What we do know is that Jesus is able and willing to both forgive and to heal. And we do know that this man trusted being helplessly carried up, uh, up a ladder to the outside of a house, lowered into a roof, probably terrified. I mean, wouldn't you just, I don't know, maybe you don't have as much shame as I do, but like, 
I would not want to be lowered into a roof if like a famous speaker was speaking somewhere like just like, here I am and I can't move and like this, this would be horrible. He goes through all of this, risks being rejected and Jesus blesses him. That's what we do now. And I'm not sure what burdens you're carrying and I, 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 I I don't know the areas where you might be experiencing paralysis. Feeling of being stuck in cycles of sin and shame, being less than alive. You ever felt that way? Maybe you do now where you just, you know, you're going through the motions, but is this really all there is? I do know that the spotlight of this story is not on your doom. It's on Jesus who says, your sins are forgiven. Get up, walk. You're forgiven, you're free. Now, there's a very important piece to the story that we can't overlook. And it's the third person who's not really a person at all, but it's the four frat brothers. (laughs) It's the four people who bring this man before Jesus. You know, Mark could have described this story in so many ways, but rather than telling us about chunks of roof falling into people's eyes, he writes, seeing their faith. Jesus says to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Seeing the faith of the friends of the paralytic. How does one see their faith? I don't, I mean, was there a photo? Is it something you could draw? Could LL do a watercolor painting of their faith? Did they wear it on a t-shirt, like one of those cheesy, you've seen them, Bible bookstore t-shirts? Faith in Jesus is the bringing together of sort of two elements. One is you gotta believe at least somewhat in the reality that Jesus has the desire and authority to act, like otherwise they wouldn't have been there. But then, but then you have to live as though you actually believe that Jesus has the power and authority to act. And I want you to notice that, that faith in Jesus, the faith, that, or the faith that Jesus sees in these four friends has nothing to do with their doctrine. Because there were no creeds yet. Has nothing to do with their systematic theology. Because that didn't exist yet. Has nothing to do with them having the right view of atonement because he hadn't done that yet. The beginning of a journey with Jesus for these four men was them acting in faith that maybe, just maybe, Jesus could help their friend. And I want to suggest it's not much more complicated than that today. Even though we have a lot more complicated theologies and doctrines and creeds, it's not a lot more complicated than that. To think that maybe, just maybe, Jesus might want to hear from me, that maybe, just maybe, Jesus might want to heal me, that maybe, probably, in fact, for sure, the scripture is saying, He can forgive me and you. Jesus' response to these four friends should give us great encouragement for those people in our lives who seem like their path in life is leading them farther away from God. For those friends or neighbors or family members who might, you know, might feel like, you might feel like they're stuck or shut off from trusting in Jesus, What we see in this story is that in the mystery of faith and in the graciousness of Jesus, the faith of the friends is what brings this man to God. We actually don't hear anything about the faith of the paralyzed man in the story, which I just think is is fascinating. 
I wouldn't want to build a whole theology on that, but at the same time, it is equally inspired and in this book we call the Bible, and we've got to take it seriously. We might not be able to carry our friends to the doorstep of Jesus because I'm not sure where he lives right now, but we sure can carry our friends there with our prayers and in our hope. We might not be able to get our loved ones to Jesus' home, but we can introduce them to his household. And I gotta say, I'm increasingly thankful in a polarized world that we live in that I can introduce my friends to this household. Y'all are pretty cool. (laughs) It is the work of the church to see others, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to extend forgiveness, and to pray for healing. And I pray that we would walk as those who are forgiven and free and then extend that same hope to other people. Lord, we thank you for including this story in your word. For the mystery and the wonder of your forgiveness. For how even the faith of another can influence the life of someone else. Lord, I pray for freedom and forgiveness for us and that we would be agents of that freedom and forgiveness for others. Amen.